So the, uh, the parable that we're going to be checking out is in Mark chapter 12, so if you want to turn to that, uh, you can. I, I need to like just kind of share something with you guys to, to help set this up. I have a fairly notorious reputation in my family uh, for just one thing, by the way, not, nothing else, but just this one thing, uh, of, of not being able to find stuff that's right in front of my face. I don't know if any of you can relate to that or struggle with that. I don't know if that's a... Uh, male dominant character traits, you know, or, or what that is. But I, I just can't, it can be, it can be sitting right there. I think my grandfather said something like, uh, if it's a snake, it bit you, you know, <laughs> something like that to describe what it was like. So I, just the other day, I, I go into our bookshelf. It's where we keep our books uh, at our house. And I'm looking for a book on the bookshelf. And I can tell you the color of the book. I can tell you the name of the book. I can tell you the author's last name. I can describe to you what the cover looks like, but I cannot find the book on the bookshelf. And so I do uh, what any normal person does in, in, that, uh, in that situation. I say, I, the book, it's just not here. Where's the book? And say, uh, say hey, Renee, my, my wife Renee, I, I can't find this book. It's not here. Where is it? Somebody moved it. You know, it, it's gone. It just doesn't exist. So Renee goes into the room, looks at the bookshelf and says, isn't this it? Yeah, yeah, yes, it was, and I just can't find. So I don't know if I don't know if you can relate to that or not. You know, people handle it in a couple of different uh, scenarios, a couple of different ways. Now, I will say I'm not as bad yet as one of the professors I had in college, who she was uh, teaching the class and she couldn't find her reading glasses, and so she was looking everywhere for them. Uh, she has two pairs of reading glasses, and do you want to know why? Uh, how I know that? Both pair were on top of her head as she was looking, and so the class is just laughing as this is happening, and finally she realizes, oh, okay, okay, what's going on here? She's like, I know I brought a pair of reading glasses with it, and both were on top of her head. But we, like, we react in a couple different ways to this. The first way, you know, is kind of, kind of my way, where you come up with all these reasons for why this thing that you're looking for, it's your glasses, your book, whatever it is, it's just gone. Like it just doesn't exist anymore. Aliens came down or somebody stole just that one thing out of your house. It just, it's, it's gone. And so you, you just kind of walk around. It's like, it doesn't exist anymore. I can't find my glasses. can't find this book. It's gone. You don't know where it is. Then, then there's some, anybody relate to that? You're just like, you give up immediately. That's me. All right. It just doesn't exist anymore. Then there are those of us who, um, who will destroy anything in their path. Like once, once you can't find that thing, you kind of almost panic just a little bit in a different way. And you're like, I'm going to tear everything apart. It's kind of like if you ever play with Legos, you're looking for that one piece. And you're like, you just start throwing pieces all over the place, if, if you know what I'm talking about. You just will tear up the whole house. You'll forget to pick up your kid at school. You're just going to be consumed with dealing with that problem. You're trying to figure out how to get rid, how to find the thing that you're looking for. And you're going to keep going and keep going and and destroy everything in your path to do that. Both reactions kind of have the same issue, where they're, where they're both just kind of completely consumed with the problem at hand. Everything that's going on, they're not going to think about anything else. They're not going to come back to it later. They're not going to think about whether or not they actually have time to deal with the problem at hand. All they're consumed at that moment in their life is with, with that problem, with that particular obstacle in getting through that. Everything else just, just stops immediately at that point moving forward. And we have a kind of an idiom for that that we use in the, in the English language. And we say, if someone does that, if they get consumed with a the problem, they can't see anything else, they completely lose perspective over this thing, we say they can't see the forest for the trees. 
You just, you just completely lose perspective on everything else in life, and this problem becomes bigger. We really make it bigger than it was ever, uh, bigger than it was to, to begin with. We lose sight of everything else. And you know what? That's, that's the trouble with religion. That, as we're going to be talking about this parable that Jesus teaches in Mark chapter 12, that, that's kind of the trouble with religion, is that when we come to life with this perspective of we have this all-encompassing, transcendent idea for life that, that everything else you know, centers around or flows out of or is affected by, that, that's one of the troubles that we can have, is that if our focus is, is wrong on what that transcendent idea is, it helps us to, it causes us to lose perspective on life. Religion in and of itself, just, just religion, it just focuses on problems. It just looks at the trees. God wants us to see the solution. That's why he sent Jesus and he gives us the solution to, to begin with. When we get caught up in religion, it starts to cause trouble in our life. It causes issues because we get wrapped up in problems more so than we do focusing on the solution. We can't see the forest for the trees. So when religion becomes the thing that we're concerned with, when we think through life as if we do the right things, we'll be accepted by God, we're really just kind of basing it on our own pride, our own ability to find the solution. Or some people will say, well, I'm not religious. I don't have that issue, so I don't, I don't you know, put stock in my spirituality based on the things that I accomplish in this life. I'm, I'm just I'm kind of a spiritual person. And I'm not very religious, but I'm spiritual, so I believe things. You're kind of on the opposite side of the same coin. We're still this, this pride-based solution that if I do what kind of makes me feel happy or if you do what you feel, feel is, is right or, or is happy for you, you'll, you'll fulfill God. So one just kind of destroys everything. The religious person kind of destroys everything in their path to, to deal with the problem in, in front of them. The spiritual person, you know, who says, oh, I'm not religious, says, you know, just kind of gives up. He's like, like, ah, there's, there's really not a solution here for me to focus on or for me, uh, for me to do. Both are based on pride. Our own decision as to whether or not we have the ability to deal with the issue at hand or the obstacle at hand. And so this is what Jesus talks about in, in Mark chapter 12. But I need to kind of give you some background just before this parable. So Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's traveled here, and he's going around... Um, and in Mark chapter 11, right before he goes into this parable, he's talking with the chief priest, the teachers of the law, and the elders. And they've come up to him and they say, Jesus, by what authority are you doing what you're doing? And, and by doing what you're doing, Jesus had just come into the temple. And th- this is the passage that's you know, fun to, to bring up because Jesus gets angry. He turns tables over in the temple. He's like driving people out with whips and stuff like that. It's like, oh, man, that's, you know, I'm, uh, that sounds exciting. You know, that would be interesting there. And so they come and they say, Jesus, what, like, where are you getting this from? By what authority are you doing this? And Jesus, as he always does when he's uh, confronted with questions like this that are meant to trap him, he responds with a question. And he says, tell me this, answer, answer me this. By what authority did John the Baptist go around calling people to repent? By, by whose authority? Here's the reason he asked this, because the teachers of the law, the religious elite at that time, were, were going to be confronted with answering that question in one of two ways. If they say that John the Baptist's repentance that he called for, his baptism was from God, then they would be admitting, admitting that they're hypocrites that don't follow God, because they ignored John the Baptist. They didn't like him. They wanted to get rid of him. Eventually, John the Baptist is, is killed, and they're, they're perfectly fine with that. If they say 
that his message was not from God, then they were scared uh, for their own lives because the people at the time thought that he was from God, that his message of repentance, he was a prophet from God, that's how they viewed them, and they knew that they would make everybody upset with them. What they were really concerned about at that time is just maintaining their own sense of power and control over the situation. And so they say to Jesus, well, I, I don't know. They won't give him a straight answer. And Jesus says to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So he's calling them out. He says, neither will I tell you. He knows that they know the answer. They just don't want to give it. They're so busy holding on to their own sense of control and pride that they won't admit what they already know to be true. And so he tells them this parable in Mark chapter 12. Jesus spoke to, again, the chief priests, the elders, and um, the teacher of the law in parables. And he says this, A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenant said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? And this comes from Psalm uh, 118, verses 22 and 23. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teacher of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. They looked for a way to arrest them because they knew that Jesus had spoken against them, but they weren't really actually considering, weren't willing to consider whether or not what Jesus had to say was true. And if it should cause any difference in their life, that it should lead them to repentance. And, and so here, here's the thing that comes out, the trouble with religion and what, what it ca- causes to happen in our lives. If we're consumed with just that, with our religious performance, then pride starts to become the thing that we base our life and our actions on. And pride, as Jesus is teaching through this parable, is the enemy of God's power at work in our lives. Jesus is describing just the typical vineyard setup and typical tenant farmer setup where the owner would come in, and the owner in this case in this parable is God. He comes in, he sets up this vineyard, he builds a watchtower so they can look out for fires and for robbers. They build a wall to keep animals and people from just wandering in. So, I mean, typical thing there, tenant farmers come in, they're going to take care of it. And as per usual, when it's time for the harvest, the owner sends servants to come and get part of what he owns. And, and so as Jesus is describing this, he's not just describing this relationship that, that the teachers of the law at that time have with God, and, and they're in the position of beating the servants that are, that are brought to him. They're in the position of killing the heir who comes, who is Jesus in this case, because they want his inheritance. The irony is it's already the inheritance that God wants to, wants to give them. He's also talking about the story of the Israelites, 
the nation of Israel. This is the story, this is the picture of the entire Old Testament, that as God is working through his people, the Israelites, he constantly sends prophets to them. He constantly sends messages to them. And 9.9 out of 10 times, it's always for them to repent. For them to put their pride aside, for them to put aside their complete focus on religious observance and complete lack of concern for their hearts and what God has called them to do and how he's called them to to live out. They would ignore them, they would beat them, they would get rid of them, and 9.9 out of 10 times the people or the king would at best tell the prophet to get lost, at worst they would try to hunt them down and have them killed. And, and, and it's, this, it's this interesting relationship that people have when they have this transcendent idea of how life is meant to be lived and what it causes them to do, that, that, that religion, when it becomes an end of itself, causes a lot of trouble for us. Sometimes it even gets in the way of what God calls us and wants us to do. And Jesus is calling out these religious elite leaders for this. Jesus describes what religious followers of God have been doing since the beginning. So the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come let us kill him let the, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And he goes on to say, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He'll come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When we try to take what God has called us to do and use that to manipulate God's power to produce what we want in our lives, this is what happens. When we start to use the privilege that we share as Christ followers, as people of God to oppress other people, to manipulate the situation to get what we want versus what God wants to accomplish in and through our lives, this is what it looks like. What God wants to have happen is he wants to produce the benefit of his power at work within us to produce the results that will benefit us. Not the ones that we want, not the benefits that we want, but the things that actually will benefit us. And that's the irony of all these things, as Jesus is talking about, is that God already wants to give his followers the rights of inheritance. But when we let pride determine what we do and how we live out God's teaching and his word and the way of Jesus in our life, it keeps us from this. Here's, uh, here's how Tim Keller describes this in The reason, reason for God. He says, The tendency of religious people is to use spiritual and ethical observance as a lever to gain power over others and over God, appeasing him through ritual and good works. This leads to both an emphasis on external religious forms as well as greed, materialism, and oppression in social arrangements. Those who believe they have pleased God by the quality of their devotion and moral goodness naturally feel that they and their group deserve deference and power over others. The God of Jesus and the prophets, however, saves completely by grace. He cannot be manipulated by religious and moral performance. He can only be reached through repentance, through the giving up of power. If we are saved by sheer grace, we can only become grateful, willing servants of God and everyone around us. See, the the religious person will be so so consumed about whether or not they've accomplished or checked off the boxes of their religious observance for the day that they'll forget to put into practice what they've observed. 
The spiritual person, you know, the spiritual person who says, I'm, I'm not religious, their, their pride comes, comes about in a little bit different way where it says, you know what, I, you know, we just need to be nice to, to each other. I mean, that's really what God wants from us is, is, is to be nice. And, and in doing so, we'll reject the kindness that God wants us to show others by sharing the truth of his grace with them, both both cause us to both you know religious uh, complete focus on uh, religiosity or complete focus on just spirituality. Both will cause us to reject relationship with other people. Both both put us in this position where we say, "Well, I'm religious, and so I, I can't I, you know I, can't, I just can't be around you." Like, you're the type of person that God doesn't want me to be with. You're the type of person that, that I need to reject because God rejects you because, because of this thing. And so you can't, you can't be here with me. I can't be in relationship with you. This overly spiritual person says, well, I'm okay. You're, you're okay. Just, just kind of leave me alone because you're, you're doing things a little bit differently over here. But what God calls us to, the religion and spirituality that God calls us to is a gospel-centered faith. And the gospel-centered person will practice, will put into practice the kindness of God, the fullness of grace and truth. Where Yes, there are religious observances that come, come with it, but it's a spirituality based on caring about what happens to other people. The religious spirituality of the religious elite that Jesus is talking to resulted in a society that was built on marginalization and hard hearts. And, and, and this, is not just, this is not just a religious thing. I mean, you look at other, uh, other countries that are based on uh, you know, having no religious influence whatsoever. This is a human thing. Where our natural tendency is broken and sinful people is to, is to rely on ourselves is to have pride in what we can accomplish, what we can do for God or what we can do for ourselves and create the results that we want in, in our life. And so we start to observe religion in our lives where we start to put in solutions in place or we start to reject other people or, or make everything about, about ourselves and make it seem like God has saved us just for religious observance, but that's not what he saved us for what he saved us is, is from ourselves. He saved us from us. And the stone that Jesus mentions that the builders rejected that became the cornerstone, Jesus' death and resurrection is built on that truth. That, that what we do in this life and how we do it is all based on the foundation of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for us. This idea of love and self-sacrifice, of full grace and full truth that is the impetus for which, why, for, for which why we do the things that we do in this life. In Mark chapter 10, verses 43 through 45, Jesus is talking about the jockeying for power and pride of position that pervade in government. And he uses this as an example to say, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Religious fervor and superior spirituality create a pride in us that misses this, this truth that God calls us to. And it's just simply this. It, it, you know, you wonder, well, how, how do I live this out? If God calls me, like, what is he calling, calling me to? It's, it's just that helped people help people. That, that when, we, when we realize that what God has saved us from is, is our own selves, that, 
And, and then simply because he's done that for us and we know that that's true in, in our lives, we should be willing to spread that and share that with other people. That becomes the reason for, for our living and, and how we live that out. Paul describes this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. He says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, but we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It was always God's plan for his people, which, which includes us, by the way, to work the vineyard for our benefit and the benefit for others. One of the joys that we share and one of the hopes as Christians is that we, like, we're good, we're already where God wants us to be. Once we've gone through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus through, through baptism, we've become that new creation. Like, we're, we are where God wants us to be. And so the question then becomes, well, not like am I checking off the, the, the boxes here, and, and do I feel good about how many times I've read my Bible or how many times I've gone to church this month? But, but it starts to become, man, I, 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 I need to make sure I know what God's Word says so I can share it with other people. I need to make sure that I'm at church so I can, so I can encourage and, and share with, with other people so we can help each other as we continue to follow him in love and grace. If you want to know whether or not you're religion-centered or spirituality-centered or gospel-centered, you start to ask yourself these kinds of questions. You compare and contrast yourself with the religious elite that Jesus is speaking this parable against and say, well, how, how am I treating other people in my life? What do those relationships look like? Because their posture against God was that their pride was going to cause them to reject Anything that caused them to treat other people differently or anything that caused them to live any differently than them. And so is your life different as a result of Jesus coming? Do, are you, do you share the gospel? Do you share this love and grace with other people? Are you living out good works as evidence of, of building up the body of Christ because of what God has done in your life? Are there people in your life that you're, you're trying to help grow closer to God? Are there people in your life that you're trying to share the truth of God's word to? Are you focused on, on something else, on something based on pride, on, on, on making sure, well, I've, I've got I've to study this text before I can share it with someone else? Yeah, yeah you, you, you've got to read it and, and, and know it and understand it, but that, it, it's not you study it for 25 years before you ever share it with someone else. God calls us to live out this faith with, with other people. He calls, it, calls us to, to live out a transcendent idea of love and grace and truth. Not religion, not spirituality. He calls us to the transcendent truth of the gospel. And so as Jesus is teaching this parable, long story short, he's saying this, your pride... In your effort, our pride, my pride, and my effort will cause me, will cause you, to, will cause us to lose the very thing that we strive for. That if what, if what we're trying to accomplish in life and what we're trying to have happen is not something that, that is reliant on God's power at work through us, then it's already doomed to fail. And so for you and I to give up our power to God so that he can give his grace through you and me. 
That's why uh, every week at Velocity we take communion together. It's because it's, it's not just through us, it's through what Jesus has done, his death, burial, and resurrection, something that we couldn't earn, something that we couldn't cause, something that we can't even do for ourselves, God has already done. The truth is we're, as Christ followers, we're, we're saved and, and we're in. And so the impetus then for the, our being is sharing that with other people, is encouraging the body of Christ so that the, that can happen, eliminating our own pride eliminating our own efforts so that God's effort can be at work within us. You see, when Jesus was, was about to be crucified, I mean, he, he, uh, he asked God, he's like, hey, if there's a different way, <laughs> I'd, be cool. I'd be cool with that. Like, I, I, wouldn't mind, I wouldn't mind that happening. But th- this, is, this is the way. And, and Jesus followed him in that. And you see the effect and the impact that it leaves for all of us. It changes our life. It changes our eternity. And we get to share that with others. Let's pray. God, we thank you for um, this time of communion and, and just this, this pause that, that it is to gain perspective on, on life and, and why, we, why we're even here, why we even come to church, why we serve in the church, why, we, um, why we're self-sacrificial in our life uh, for others. The perspective that we live out is, um, is based on on salvation from our sin. God, we thank you for that, and we ask that you um, show us where you're, you're wanting to work in our lives and through our lives. Uh, help us to decrease so that you may increase. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, it's intense, right? God, our sins, paying everyone life. The greatest story ever told that's hardly ever told. God. Yes, God the maker and giver of life. And by life, I mean any and all manner and substance, seen and unseen, what can and can be touched, thoughts, image, emotions, love, atoms, and oceans, God. All of it is handiwork, one of which is masterpiece, made so uniquely that angels look curiously. The one thing in creation that was made with his imagery, the concept so cold, it's the reason I stay bold, how God breathed in a man and he became a living soul formed with the intent of being infinitely, intimately fond. Creator and creation held an eternal bond, and it was placed in perfect paradise till something went wrong. A species got deceived and started lusting for his job and odd list of complaints, as if the system ain't working, and used that same breath he graciously gave us to curse him. And that sin seed spread through our soul's genome, and by nature of your nature, your species, you participated in the mutiny, our, yes, our sin. His righteousness, his death, functions as payment. Yes, payment. Wrote a check with his life, but at the resurrection, we all cheered, because that means the check cleared. Pierced feet, pierced hands, blood-stained son of man, fullness, forgiveness, free passage into the promised land. That same breath that God breathed into us, God gave up to redeem us. And anyone and everyone, and by everyone I mean everyone, who puts their faith and trust in him, and him alone can stand in full confidence of God's forgiveness. And here's what the promise is, that you are guaranteed full access to return to perfect unity by simply believing in Christ and Christ alone. You are receiving life. Yes.